Welcome to Restoration Dialogues, where ideas and the felt experience of being human come together to support personal and collective healing, the restoration of ourselves and our society, with your hosts, John Earhart and Scott Brown. Hello, I'm Scott Brown, and I'm here with John Earhart. We are the founders of the Colorado Center for Restorative Practices. We're also here with our special guest for today, Jess Cooley. And John, I wanted to start by just asking you what's what's alive for you right now as we uh, start the podcast. Something occurred for me this morning as I, I realized that I was uh, in the midst of feeling a lot of anger and, dare I say, hatred. And I was having difficulty making room for it. So... One of the things that happened for me is I started to work with this, with making room for the anger and allowing it with, with the intention, with the awareness that I was trying to get at the deeper root of it and even the value of its presence in my uh, experience. And so doing that was really useful for me because it comes up a lot, and and my first instinct is to reject it, is to say that it's not okay to be angry, it's not okay to feel hatred um, toward anyone, and and what I found was that there was there was uh, when I made room for it, when I breathed into it, when I accepted it, my mood changed, and the value of my my physical presence changed. I had more energy afterward and the uh, the thought processes around the anger dissipated but there was this this energy that remained that uh that moved me into uh, the rest of my day in a in a more uh purposeful way so so that's that's kind of what got me to this point in my day thank you for asking what's up for you I did a talk for a small group last night on peacemaking. And it really felt important to me to start with the context of our kind of our lives and our our peacemaking work, our activism work. So I talked about the spiritual context and the healing context that we're all in recovery from Western civilization and the state of the world context. And for me, that's just the starting point. But I realize that, that just that much is a lot for people to take in. And I felt pushback around describing the degradation of our planet and talking about the violence in the world and you know, there's there's widespread resistance to taking that in as a part of our truth and as a part of our context. There's so many people that, that just want to be in the good stuff, in the light, in the hope. So it was really good, really good learning for me to get the feedback, to participate in the discussion that arose, and just to realize how big it is just to appreciate the context for our lives right now. And I think it has a lot to do with 
this sense that I have that it's a difficult time to be a human being right now. There's just a lot of people struggling. There's a lot going on. And I want to appreciate that people need to integrate at their own pace. And I want to practice being understanding with people and meet them where they're at and understand that my truth is not necessarily their truth. So it was, it was a great session and I learned a lot. So that's, that's what's up for me. I hear that there's some cross relevance with our, with our two experiences and in terms of yours, allowing for that larger context, even though it, it may feel bad to think about it or to feel into it, that there's, even though it may feel like a really negative presence in your life to think about the, that context and, and the consequences of, of the state of the world, that allowing for it can help move it to some degree. Yeah, it's where the juice is. You know, you think about someone like Joanna Macy or an Andrew Harvey. They are as aware as anybody of all of the quote-unquote problems in the world. And yet, they're not moving from a place of fear. They're mm. moving from a very empowered place of standing in the truth, mm -hmm. their truth. And I think that is where real compassion is born. You know, it's born deep in the heart, that heart of, that's open to the suffering. Mm -hmm. You know, there's a shallow compassion that's kind of an intellectual level. But I think here we're talking about a, a real deep level of care and compassion and clarity that's born out of a felt sense of interconnectedness with everything. It's a bearing witness. It's a, it's a bearing witness. Yeah. Okay. Well, so it is my honor and privilege to introduce our guest today. Jessica Cooley is a coach and researcher whose passion is for supporting people in transforming their internal and interpersonal conflicts. Jessica's first career was as a holistic health practitioner, specializing in neuromuscular therapy and somatic-based mindfulness. But in 2006, she began her training in conflict resolution, obtaining certificates in integral peacemaking, restorative justice, family mediation, nonviolent communication, narrative therapy, and socially engaged Buddhism. In 2011, she completed her Master's of Science in Conflict Analysis and Resolution from George Mason University, concentrating in narrative conflict resolution and genocide studies. During her graduate studies, she conducted original research in Rwanda, collecting the testimonies of victims, perpetrators, and res rescuers during the 1994 genocide. Jessica and her husband, Dave, currently have a private practice called Open Circle Conflict Coaching, where they use narrative and somatic ideas to help individuals, couples, and families reauthor their conflicts, rewire their triggers, and reclaim their relationships. So you've been uh, quite busy over the past 10 years, <laughs> Jess. It's been full. <laughs> yeah. So the storytelling, one of the things that I'm noticing is that storytelling is uh, an important theme mm -hmm. for you in your work. And, and also in the way that, uh, that we identify our own 
sense of being in the world. So I want to ask you to tell your story in terms of how it led you to this work of helping people with conflict. My story starts very early with training and conflict resolution. My grandmother was very important an influential figure in my life. She was a widow, and so she was very involved in my life. And in this very paradoxical way, she, um, her passion was social justice. And so I grew up with her just hearing really strong narratives about what she stood for, which was specifically racial equality and you know, democracy, justice, peace. She was always kind of involved with groups and meetings, very involved in the civil rights movement. And so there's this really rich value system that I got from her, but this paradox that she wasn't a very peaceful person. <laughs> so, so she, you know, she had a lot of rules and standards, and her and my mother were very entangled and so there was a lot of fighting. There was a lot of criticism, a lot of judgment. And sort of very young age, I was kind of put into being a mediator for their relationship and other relationships. So I kind of got this very early on experience in, like, how to mediate conflict. And thankfully, though, it, it didn't shut me down. And it really got me curious. I was curious about human relationships. And I remember in high school, it was in 10th grade, I had an elective, a psychology class. And that's like, it just, I came online in a certain way. You know, just um, having the opportunity to explore the human mind. So yeah, that's kind of the background, is in one hand, this, you know, a lot of drama and trauma in my childhood, but then this also, this flip coin of, my grandmother holding these values, and my mother holding them too. My mother loves people, and she's just such a sweetheart. And so kind of growing up, these two parallel things going on. And um, after college, I studied psychology, and I was in a lot of pain. And there was like a lot of healing and a lot of figuring out that I needed to do. And so I kind of I started my own healing path which took several years and led to massage school and led to, you know, reading about communication and a lot of self-help books and studying yoga and finding Buddhism and things like that. And which eventually led me to Boulder. And it was, I remember coming out of a yoga class, of course, right? <laughs> <laughs> Young twenties in Boulder, I'm in a yoga class, right? And someone showed me the elephant journal. But there was the peacemaker ad for the integral peacemaker training. And I think the ad said, like, are you a peacemaker? And it was one of those complete aha moments because years before that, when I was maybe 18 or 19, I had had this dream that I was walking in a cemetery and there was this, like, up on top of a hill, there was this tombstone with a cherub. And then kind of this ripple effect, like The Matrix happened. But this was before the movie The Matrix. But, you know, like the whole air and everything got thick and strange. And the cherub came to life, and it, it called me over, and then it transformed into the Virgin Mother, Mary. And she said, you are a peacemaker. And I woke up. And I remember writing it down in my journal. 
I had no clue what a peacemaker was. And I remember asking people, do you know what a peacemaker is? And like <laughs> the whole, like where I was in the world, everyone was like, well, I think, you know, like there's peacekeepers with the UN or there's mediators or diplomats, but like it just didn't, and none of that resonated with me, you know? So, so it's like years later, I see this ad, are you a peacemaker? And it's, feels like the next time the you know first time since this dream that I'm like seeing that word and um of course you know the curriculum was NBC and Ken Wilber and those were things I was already reading so it just felt like oh my god this is what I'm supposed to do and I signed up and so that started the kind of leap into you know, conflict resolution, not just being this thing that the survival skill that I needed to cultivate for myself, right? <laughs> to swim instead of sink, it became like, oh, okay, this is going to be a professional path for me. And so it's been 10 years in the making. And That's such a wonderful story. And um, I just have to say that the uh, Mother Mary coming to visit you is so similar to Gandhi coming to visit me. <laughs> which led me to the peacemaker training where the three of us met. And yeah. it was a vision for me too. I saw a peace sign in the sky at a, at a vision fast and came right back and discovered the training. Uh-huh. Wow. Yeah. But it's not a prerequisite. Visions are not a prerequisite <laughs> to being peacemakers. Okay. Cause that, that might set the bar a little too high for, you know, cause not everybody is going to have that. But Jess, I would love to just fast forward a little yeah. bit in your experience. And I would love to hear about Rwanda yeah. and the narrative therapeutic aspect of what you experienced over there. Mm-hmm. That's just fascinating part of your story. Yeah. Yeah. I was in grad school. And as part of the theory in my program, I was, you know, learning narrative theory, which is different than narrative therapy, but there's a relationship. And then the Bearing Witness Retreat to go to Rwanda showed up. And so previously there had been the Bearing Witness Retreats in Auschwitz. It was funny, I had said, I was like, I wish they would have one in Rwanda because I was studying Rwanda, and then that email came. And these are the Zen peacemakers. These are the Zen peacemakers, yeah, which I hadn't been involved with. You know, there had been several years since I had done the program we did. And so I jumped at the opportunity to raise the money to go to Rwanda and do this Bearing Witness Retreat, where we went around the country, um, internationals, which means non-Rwandans, and Rwandans together, going around and you know meeting people that were survivors. Many of the people in the actual witness, bearing witness were survivors as well. Mm-hmm. Going to a prison and talking to people that killed during the genocide. Going to memorials and you know different sites that mass killings had occurred. And it was at the end of that that someone, uh, three people who had rescued, came and spoke with us. And this, like, it blew my mind open, just that there had been rescuers, that people who were told to kill, and really not just told to kill, it was kill or be killed for a lot of these folks. And instead they chose to risk their lives to save lives. And for me it was a similar parallel to what psychology has had where, you know, the field 
what positive psychology has come into being in terms of kind of, you know, saying, okay, like, we're not really learning much about happiness when we only study depression. <laughs> and there's been this new positive psychology, new meaning, you know, 20, 30 years of actually, let's study happiness, let's study well-being and health if we want to understand more about that. And I had seen this parallel in conflict resolution. It's like, oh, we're studying conflict and we're studying war to understand peace. Why aren't we looking at the people who have been peaceful? You know, the people who resist violence. So that galvanized me and I went back a few months later and spent the summer there and collected, there's two organizations, Memos and Abuka in Rwanda that were finding these rescuers um, and gathering their testimonies and, you know, identifying them and kind of giving them, there's a whole process to go through. You can't just say I rescued, you know, there's a whole kind of uh, process to go through to identify them. And so I, with two people from those organizations, just went around the country and, and gathered these testimonies and record them. And then afterwards, analyzed them with narrative analysis. And so what I found was on the surface, these rescuers were very different. You know, they weren't all from one demographic. They were poor, they had money, they were educated, they were never educated, they were Christian, Muslim, they were you know, kind of no religion or what they you know, called the older religion there, which was pre-Christianity for the country. And what I found was that the rescuers all shared, though, these similar stories where they had the narrative of we are all one. So they would say, you know, there are no Hutus, there are no Tutsis, we are all one. And, you know, we are all humans, we are all Rwandans, we are all brothers and sisters under God, we are all God's children. So it's this really like universal, this narrative of universal concern and care. And so what that did for them is when they heard, because Rwanda had an intense propaganda campaign that was anti-Tutsi and pro-genocidal, and so when they heard the radio propaganda, they, they saw right through it because they had this other story that was so cherished to them, so real for them, that, no, we're not separate. We're all human. And they also, it wasn't just their stories, their belief system, but they all had people, and I would say, why did you rescue why did you put your life on the line? Why did you maybe even lose your child? And many people I interviewed were also, um, had died, and I interviewed their children or their spouses that were still alive. They all had a role model that exhibited this for them. Like someone in their life, a grandparent, a parent, a neighbor that they were close to, who gave them kind of like infuse this moral narrative into them, like would talk about the importance of generosity and tolerance and would tell them stories about previous times when Tootsies were, you know, experiencing violence or injustice that they had helped those people. And then they would, the rescuers talked about seeing these role models, not just tell those stories or talk about it, but actually like embodying it, that they were always 
this place where anyone can come to their home and seeing them kind to everyone, everyone, regardless of what they were. So it's an interesting, it's almost like this moral storyline helped them have this immunity against the propaganda. Well, and it sounds more to me than just a moral storyline. It sounds like a really deep belief system. Yeah. Like a worldview. Yeah. Which I I so celebrate hearing that because that's what I talk about all the time is how in this country we need to change the worldview from the belief in separateness to one of interbeing and interrelatedness. And the people you're talking about... They they have that. Yeah, that's exactly what it was. Yeah, so. Yeah, they were able to, you know, retain their moral agency in these really violent moments. What's fascinating is I also interviewed people who killed, and these were men who were in a program at this point. So it's years later, and they're in this reform restorative program actually, where they were doing restorative justice practices with the families of the people that they had killed people from. And so I asked them, you know, like, didn't anyone tell you not to kill? You know, or, or, you know, what were your thoughts about killing before? And it was so interesting. They had so much to say to me, and I'd ask that question, and it would just be complete silence. You know they, I said, did you ever see anyone who told, you know, I would ask them kind of if they had these role models or if they knew these worldviews, and and they really said they didn't. It was interesting. Yeah. Yeah. Right. Which made them more susceptible to the propaganda. Exactly. So they were more susceptible to believing when someone on the radio was saying, you know, these people are cockroaches or less than human or they're out to get you they're more susceptible to believing that and to experiencing fear and and then being able to dehumanize and kill those people of course we can't relate to that at all in in this country right dehumanizing people and killing them we don't ever do that no No, that's part of the uh, the process of making war right which leads me to uh, our next question, which yeah. is <laughs> that, which is our reoccurring question: uh, How do we end war? And I, I ask you that in the context of this narrative therapy, this narrative form of conflict resolution that that you do in your in your work, because it's so fascinating to me, and I love that part of the thread of our conversation, and. I also invite you to answer that question in any yeah. way that that feels right to you. It's a big question that I don't know the answer to at all. <laughs> <laughs> I wouldn't presume to really know. But in the context of the work that I do and the research that I've done, right, I I would say ending war doesn't happen on the battlefield or in today's world. It doesn't right happen at the fingertips of the drone controller. <laughs> It's like the antecedents of matter, the, this worldview, the mindset, the narratives, the discourses that we're embedded in and that we've internalized. And so in narrative conflict resolution or narrative therapy, there's a, you know, the slogan is, the person is not the problem, the problem is the problem. And I think this is a big thing of how we actually see problems, 
how we actually see conflict itself. And so the common way that we see problems is that they exist within people or relationships or we see or in systems, but it's this idea that problems are internal to things, right? Yeah. And so what is what leads then after that, if the problem exists within me, then I am I identify as the problem itself, right? This is what diagnosis usually does and the labeling of like mental health issues. You believe all of you is the problem, or we see the other person, all of them is the problem. And there's dysfunction and something needs to be fixed because it's broken. <laughs> and there's this idea of deficits that's defining so in narrative, it takes the problem, instead of it being internal, it externalizes it and just sees the problem is outside of people so that we can change our relationship to the problem. Because when a problem exists within us or within someone else and is static or within a relationship, there's not many options for working with them. You know, we're, we're victimized. We're victims, I think, to the problem in that way. And so externalizing it helps us kind of reconfigure our relationship to the problem so that we can reclaim our lives in a more accountable way. How does that translate into story or, or like with a client, say? Right. How does it translate into what they're doing with their own story? Yeah, yeah. Well, I can think about even what you were describing earlier, right, yeah. of... You noticed that you were angry, and so there was a story of not, you know, I shouldn't be angry. Yeah. Right? Mm-hmm. And what you did instead was you switched into a different story of I can accept or I can bring space here. Yeah. Um, so that's just one small example. Right. It's like a, it was like a different worldview or perspective that was allowed to come in. Right. But it's not just right an arbitrary worldview perspective, right? It's one that actually supports you. That's right. And so the story that you chose to shift into was one that, if I may say, was probably more aligned with your values of how you want to be, how Mm -hmm. you want to treat yourself, how you want to see the rest of your day unfold, how you want to treat your family. Yeah. So it's it's not just picking any story. It's actually finding the ways that, you know, oh, okay, there's a story that better aligns with my intentions and my cherished values and what we would call a preferred self or preferred reality. Yeah. Well, and a fundamental desire for me to connect with the truth. And so when I, when I see the, the heat and the anger there, there's a little bit of a questioning that happens. Is this the truth? Of what of what's going on, yeah, and and the answer that comes back is is invariably no in that situation because there's something going on underneath that's needing to happen. Yeah, and so if we were working together and you came to me with this anger problem, <laughs> yes. and you just said what you said about noticing the anger in this way, I would I would get really curious about well, how did you come to question anger that way. You know, tell me a story about when you learned or how you learned how to, you know, see anger and then not fall for it. And that would uncover, you know, some lived experience because it's not just about stories in terms of thinking of them as like a fairy tale. 
it's meaning making and then the lived experience that goes with that. So we would kind of thicken this alternative moment that you've had where you were able to resist the problem. That's wonderful. And yeah. it reinforces that perspective. Yeah, because there's always behind every problem, usually they take over our vision and it's all we see. But underneath or behind, there's always other experiences that are counter to it that we can kind of find, help clients reconnect to, help them restory. And that becomes the dominant way of seeing things instead of this problem-saturated way of seeing things. Yeah, I love that. It, it really honors the seems to really honor the inherent wholeness and health of people. Yes. And I also wonder, because I believe there's a great paradox in play here, yeah. where on the one hand we are inherently whole and healthy, and on mm -hmm. the other hand th th there is a woundedness. And so that's where John and I in our work often that leads us into talking about restorative practices mm -hmm. that will increase our self-awareness, our self-acceptance, mm -hmm. our resilience, um, deepen our connection to nature, you know, all as a foundation for health. So it, to me, it feels like a great paradox. And I'm, I'm wondering how that fits with your model, if there is room in that model for something like restorative practices that deepen our connection to to nature and our self-awareness kind of an internal kind of an internal move and what comes up for me around that is just to add to your question in terms of an example of that which would be repairing the heart yeah there's a few things to touch on in terms of repairing the harm absolutely um, a lot of narrative work is restorative is about repairing harm. And this idea of externalizing the problem actually allows more agency for someone to take responsibility in relation, especially there's a lot of work with men who have done harm. And, um, and that being the zone of restorative practices that I've you know, seen. One of the things that is different about narrative is it actually looks at the way it has a political background to it or a political position, and then it's concerned and interested in the role of discourses, and seeing that problems usually are influenced by discourses. So if I'm working with a couple, a heterosexual couple, I'm not just going to be thinking about the content of the fight or this idea of dynamics, but I'm going to be thinking about the ways ideas of heterosexuality and gender roles are influencing them. So that's something that narrative holds. But narrative critiques the idea of inherent anything. And even potentially sees that as, yeah, it critiques the idea of inherentness. Yeah, because I, as a husband and father, am telling myself stories about what my role is in that context. Yeah. We're pro products of the well, story. Exactly, right. Yeah. So... You know, the stories that our grandparents believed compared to what we believe about what is a relationship or a marriage or a union is extremely different <clears throat> because of the time and the history and the context that 
you know, the different discourses that are influencing the way that we define who we are, what we are, what we want, what the rules are, and all of that. Mm. So it allows for this capacity for improvisation and spontaneity in creating a path forward or a solution to what is seen as the problem. Absolutely. Yeah. A reauthoring, you know, once you kind of look at, Oh wow, I'm I'm really under the influence of man is provider story. Mm -hmm. How's that working for me? Is it working for us? Maybe it is in this way. Maybe it isn't. What's another way to conceive our relationship? And I'm still interested in this question of practices and how that, how that fits or doesn't fit with, with the model. Yeah, well, um, say that again, though. Well, mindfulness practices, yeah. nature-based practices, yeah. you kind of know my little bit about okay, my yeah. model. So I think the difference would be it doesn't deny any of those practices, but it's aware of not being an expert that prescribes anything as the solution. So... Solutions come from people or communities based in their experience of what's best for them and their situation and time and community. So there wouldn't be a prescription of we need to go into nature and reconnect or we need mindfulness practices. I personally, I agree with you because those fit with me, you know, and those connect me and help me live in a way that I feel best with. But that may not be what works for somebody else. So that's where it differs. Yeah. And that, to me, really follows the the restorative uh, practices philosophy, which which often finds us in a circle with a community, brainstorming the next move. What's going to work best in that situation. What's going to work best in that situation. And And the facilitator doesn't get to come in and say, well, you know what you really need? You know what's really going to help this situation, right? right? Yeah. It's got to it's got to come from the people involved in the uh, situation. Yeah, mm-hmm. but I, I want to come back to this idea of inherent anything because I think it's I think it's very controversial. Right. <laughs> right. Right. Yeah. yeah. So narrative yeah. would talk about as people where we have multiple selves and we're multi-storied, which is different than this idea of a singular self. There's an article by Michael White that I can send you that critiques what he's calling this humanistic view of the self, where we have these inherent qualities, and there's a mining metaphor, right? They're inside us, and we need to go kind of on a mining journey to excavate them. Mm -hmm. And we, we find them, or we tap into them, right? And if we can't find them... We need to, or we need to release them. We need to unleash them, right? So my inner this, right? Right. Inner X, Y, Z, A, whatever, fill in the blank, right? My inner goddess, my inner chef. And I just have to like throw off all the restrictions. (laughs) And it's waiting there as if it's a complete thing with an element and an essence. Saying, saying it all, right? And I I recently discovered my inner chef, and I didn't (laughs) know I had no idea I had one. (laughs) And he knew all these recipes and knife skills immediately, right? (laughs) I did. It's it's really dangerous. Yeah. So, and it's I'm not taking the stance that that's a bad or wrong way to view the self, right? Because it's 
I mean, there's many examples of that way that have been helpful for me and helpful for people, especially in relation to a society that really over-pathologizes the self, you know, or um, some of the psychoanalytic views of the self. However, though, to not see this as truth with a capital T, but like this is one way of thinking of the self. Or noticing, so I'll give an example of when seeing the self in this way is problematic. So I was really under the influence of the idea that purpose was one of these things. Like, it's divinely given, you have it, (laughs) you have it, it's this thing, and you need to search for it, and it's there. And I couldn't find it. So in that way of thinking, I'm left with thinking, I either have it or I don't. So if I'm like, well, I know I have it. Then I, but if I can't find it, then something's wrong with me still. Like mm-hmm. I'm broken, I'm defective, something needs to be fixed. Mm-hmm. And it was painful. It was pain. I was actually making me physically sick for years to be thinking like, where is my purpose and why can't I find it? And I'm never going to be happy. And it led to all of these things, like a lot of suffering. And then when I realized, oh, I don't have to think of purpose this way. Not something that's in me that needs to be excavated and then commodified on, right? Mm-hmm. <laughs> or polished yes, and yes. then, you know, made my, right? It's, um, it's something that I can decide even for myself. Like even that subtle distinction. I can, you can write your purpose. I can write my purpose, yeah. right? I can decide what my purpose is instead of it's already decided for me. Yeah. You know? Yeah. So that's an example of, um, questioning the inherentness of anything good or bad. Yeah. I love how you emphasize that. And I, I can see how that could be controversial. Yeah. And I, I love that you brought it out and, um, and also very liberating. Yeah. And so I think that's what narrative does is when I work with clients, we have a different kind of conversation than they've had before. Right. And that's what, you know, I can see that. where the juice comes and where the shifts and the newness is made possible. Yeah. Well, I'm, I'm left feeling just like I want to celebrate how rich and juicy the territory is of, of being human in the 21st century and celebrate you, Jess, and your model and what you're bringing to the world. Do you have a website that you want to want yes, people to know about? It's opencircleconflictcoaching.com. Yeah, what a great note to end on. I'm feeling we can, you know, say goodbye and I and I'm feeling really uh inspired in, in this moment after this conversation. Thank you so much for being here. Yeah. You know, it's in your home. <laughs> Well, thank you. I feel a lot of gratitude. Thank you for listening to Restoration Dialogues. And until next time, keep it human.